When are we gonna talk about us? When are we gonna come together and clean up what we like? Do you wanna talk about us? Welcome to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine-based nonprofit organization Finding Our Voices, which is survivors of domestic abuse, including me, standing proud and speaking loud. You pretty much feel like an alien, you know, you feel like it's just happening to you. And it couldn't possibly be happening to the lady next door because they they look a certain way. They look like they have their act together. You know, he stopped going to family things with me. And then it was, we don't ever go to my parents anymore. And then it was, you know, they can't come over here anymore. And they better not even drive by. Or I saw them drive by and now I'm in trouble. My guest today is Commissioner Randy Liberty who runs all the prisons and jails in Maine, talking about the domestic violence he grew up in. I was first connected to Commissioner Liberty when I reached out to him about a book club discussion and art program that Finding Our Voices runs for women domestic violence survivors who are incarcerated at the Wyndham Prison. He praised the work we are doing around the state and then told me of his personal experience with domestic violence as a child. I am grateful to him for coming onto this radio show to talk more with me about that. Welcome, Commissioner Liberty. So have you talked about this before publicly, about your own experience with domestic violence in your home? Um, I, you know, maybe on the light, you know, maybe in passing sort of. I grew up in a, in a um, challenging environment as a child. Um, my father was in and out of jail. Um, he was, you know, he and my mother were together very young. My mother was pregnant when she was, well, she actually delivered my brother when she was 15. And, um, yeah. And then me when I, she was 17 and, uh, 21 with my brother, Ryan and, and, um, I think 23 with my, my third brother. So they were very young. My mother dropped out in eighth grade and, um, later got her GED and she went to school much, much later, um, and then uh, my father received his GED at Thomason State Prison. And so, yeah, my dad didn't work much, um, drank a lot. We grew up in a mobile home that um, there are four of us in one room. So it was a very, very difficult uh, environment. You know, we run out of heating oil in the middle of the night. You know, there was a there was a point one winter we didn't have any water because the pipes froze. My dad was gone. And, and so we had no running water for a few months. Some of my first memories are... I was probably four or five years old and my, my father had come home and uh, he was drunk and um, he started to argue with my mother. Uh, foolish stuff, you know, house wasn't clean to his standards or, you know, um, and, and they started fighting. I remember him grabbing by her by the head of the hair and hauling her around the house, you know, and her screaming and us kids screaming and, so yeah, that's kind of how I grew up in that environment. Uh, first time I really had any, you know, contact with law enforcement. My father came home and and uh, was drunk, and a domestic ensued, and local law enforcement was called, a, a trooper and a and the police chief and in Clinton were called, and and uh, my father was arrested for domestic violence and assaulted the police officers, and 
I can remember as a four or five year old going to my uncle's house asking for bail money to get him out. Um, you know, he was thrown out of most of the local bars in Fairfield. Did you grow up in, you mentioned Thomaston, but you grew up in Fairfield? I grew up in Fairfield, Clinton, that area, Lawrence High School, sort of SED 49. What did the community think of him? He was well known. And, and in fact, when I came off active duty in the Army, I applied for uh, a, a patrolman's job in Fairfield, my hometown. And and the uh, the police chief and the sergeant who were interviewing me said, who's your father? And I, I said, do you know Ray Liberty? And they said, yeah. I said, that's my uncle. And uh, they asked, who's your dad? And I said, do you know Gene Liberty? I said, that's my uncle. And um, and they said, yeah, but who's your dad? And I said, Ronnie Liberty. And they, they put their pens down and said, we know Ronnie. I said, I know you do. And um, I'm Randy. And uh, you should, you know, you should base your decision upon, you know, my merits because they had arrested him multiple times and, and um, a lot of burglaries, some vehicle thefts, um, you know, as a, as a young man throughout my childhood, he had been arrested many times. When he was violent with your mother, what are some of the things he, if you don't mind, if you, you don't have to say, but some of the things that you saw that he did to your mother? He would, uh, you know, he would hit her. He would uh, pull her by the head of the hair, um, you know, swearing at her, you know, haul her into the bedroom. Um, you know, that's the kind of behavior he'd have pushing, shoving, you know, hitting, pulling her hair, that sort of stuff. You, She's you, screaming, the kids were all screaming, you know, just terrible. Was, was there an element of him that was attractive in the community? Was he charismatic? Any positive things? Oh, absolutely. He was that, uh, you would hit the nail on the head. He was very charismatic. Everybody liked him. He was fun. Oh. He was the life of the party. He was, um, you know, he was a smooth talker. Um, he was well liked. Um, however, you know, he wasn't and, and he was loved by us. It was a strange dynamic where he hugged and loved us and was very proud of us and all of that. But he never fell followed through with, you know, providing for his family. And so we lived in poverty as a result. And he didn't have much of a work ethic. And so that in combination with, you know, drinking, you know, going out drinking on the weekends and nights and, and uh, that sort of thing made for a very difficult, you know, relationship with his wives and um, and lack of providing for us. But anyone I speak to, they all loved him. He was he was fun. He was charismatic and he was only abusive to my mother. Um, that's, now that's really interesting. And do you think that that's part of why you hear from about uh, in smaller towns, maybe where um, there's domestic abuse, but the guy's still accepted in the community and he's still supported. And it's actually the woman sometimes who's sidelined. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, I've been in law enforcement now for 42 years and and uh, early on, you know, in the 80s, um, it was a lot of you'd get called to a home and, uh, you know, neighbors would call because fight, they're fighting again. And um, when the guy would step out of the house and say, hey, you know, my wife, she's this, she's that. Um, OK, Ronnie, keep it down. Keep it, keep it, keep it down. You don't let it get out of control. It was required that we we have legislation that requires law enforcement to go in and uh, make an arrest if there's, uh, you know, particular circumstances, uh, whether it be, you know, marks or, or bruising or, or whatever the, the case may be. And um, because the good old boy thing was was full good in play in the 70s and 80s, and yeah. we weren't taking care of the, the abused spouse. And so that I think that was what happened in my circumstance where they would uh, just try to, you know, tell my father to keep it down, keep it quiet. And um, when he was sober and in the normal course of the day, he was well-liked. And, and um, 
you know. It's... Well, that's what makes it hard for a kid, right? Like, because you said you loved your father. So how do you square loving your father and seeing what he's doing to your mother? Let's talk about that. Well, it's terrible, you know, and especially the the power powerlessness of a five, six, seven, eight year old child um, who, when things are going well, it's 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 great, but when things go bad, it's out of control, and you want to protect your mother, but you're powerless to do that. And um, you know, and and when he left, um, he got uh, a woman pregnant, and he left, and um, and he would see us, he'd be with us on the weekends, and he'd be a good time dad. Just good time, dad, fun, dad, you know, no, worse. how old because were you he was, when he, he left? I was in sixth grade. Did we talk about your feelings about your mother? Did you blame her sometimes when you were growing up? No, I, I never really blamed her. Um, as I matured and, and became a father and grandfather later, um, I difficult for me to understand um, having the second, third and fourth child um and kind of assuring our poverty because she's an, an intelligent woman uh it just made it difficult to you know why would you put us in this circumstance um having four children before you're 22 years old assuring our poverty it's one thing i think to have an unplanned pregnancy with a, with somebody but then to do it four times knowing the circumstance that you're living in and uh, Did you think so- that your father might have wanted her to keep her pregnant as a way to keep her trapped? Sure. Yeah, there are multiple truths here. Was the abuse talked about when you were growing up? Did 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 anybody talk about it? Yeah, you know, my mother would make sure that she talked about this isn't how a man treats a woman, right? And uh, you boys all know that this isn't how to to do that. And and uh, she used examples of, you know, the the positive male male role modeling that we had in our lives from male teachers, you know, in school and male coaches, football coaches and track coaches. And, and that's really, I feel, how we all learned how to how to treat people in our lives, how to treat women and how to speak to them and how to how how to act as a gentleman. And um, and that's really how we learned. And then we as 17 year olds, we all joined the army. And then we had that positive male role modeling to teach us. And um, that didn't perpetuate in this generation. Could I back, could we backtrack a little bit? And could you, first of all, say if, 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 um, could you introduce yourself uh, however sure. you want to introduce yourself? <clears throat> sure. I'm Randall Liberty. Um, I am a resident of Clinton. Um, I've been in law enforcement for 42 years. I am uh, a retired command sergeant, major army, retired sheriff of Kennebec County. Um, formerly the warden of the Maine State Prison and currently the commissioner of the Maine Department of Corrections. And what what are your what is your role and what does it mean to be the commissioner of prisons? So the the commissioner of of, of corrections actually is sits on the governor's cabinet and uh, manages the eight correctional facilities and uh, the um, uh, probationers um, on the outside and the residents on the inside. I manage about twelve hundred and thirty seven staff. And eighteen hundred residents. Yeah, and um, I have about a hundred and forty-seven million dollar budget, and um, I maintain safety and security. And and really, the the my focus is is to identify what brings people to corrections, whether it be mental health, substance use disorder, trauma backgrounds, poverty, neglect, learning disabilities. That makes up primarily the people in my care, and uh, working with them um, to to address those issues so when they're released, they don't come back, and they become healthy um, citizens. Was your father, like sometimes you hear about how they target some siblings and they're mean to them? Or was your father like, you said he wasn't physically abusive to the kids, but was he emotionally abusive to to the kids in some way? No, not at all. 
Um, he loved us all equally, and um, he was uh, very good to us, very affectionate. We'd say, love you, each time we greeted each other and departed, kiss, all of that. The only, you know, my sister, whom he had with a, another another wife, um, they were very aggressive toward each other, and she's much like him when things get heated um he and she would both be aggressive yelling screaming at each other but that never happened in the home that i was raised in um ever do you remember ever trying to protect your mother or come to her as this aid um much too young um you know again when the abuse was happening with us i was uh second third fourth grade that sort of age group and so yeah yeah it's helpless and do you think that boys might have it differently than girls to be seen the father treat their mother that way? What would you say about that? I think so. And, and uh, the the worst part of that, I think, is the imprinting, right? The the learning um, that behavior. That's how you settle disagreements. That's how you act when um, you have some conflict in the home, uh, getting physical and abusing uh, those that are smaller than you. And um Fortunately, like I said, it didn't because of the positive real role modeling that my brothers and I had, it didn't transfer to this generation and we haven't had those problems. But, you know, we're all educated. We've all been in law enforcement sort of leadership positions. We all learned, um, you know, how to resolve conflict, a little physicalness. And um, but, yeah, it's, it's a very helpless sort of a feeling to watch that happen. And the the the, the turmoil, the the chaos in the house as a result and there were times when my mother would pack us up and i remember you know spending a night in the car as she tried to load the kids up and defuse the situation because either he was drunk and 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 was fighting with her and and when he went to sleep she took off or she anticipated him coming home being drunk and um abusing her so she'd pack us up and would sleep in the car for the night in the morning he was sober again and things were generally resolved and we're okay so was it definitely alcohol based would you say his violence yeah i would say that and uh he was the kind of drinker who would drink on friday and saturday night did you ever hate him for what he was doing do you remember do you remember ever feeling that i i do as a as a young younger child but it was um it's it's a very strange dynamic where you know i hated that that he did my mother but the relationship that we had one-on-one and, and, and quite frankly, it was, it was inter- very dysfunctional later on when my mother and father divorced and they remarried, there would be times when I would visit my mother and my father would be there with his wife and the four of them would be having coffee as though there was no bad history, even in spite of my father not paying any child support. I mean, the, my father was in 1975 was ordered to pay $40 a week for child support. And he never paid it. All that he had done was completely apparently forgiven and forgotten and moved on. It never made sense to me. Is your father still alive? So my father passed uh, about uh, 17 years ago. Um, I had an apartment house and and he lived in one of the apartments, sort of subsidized with his with his his wife. You own the apartment? Yeah, own the apartment house and and um, he lived in one of the apartments and. Um, he lived there until the day he died. He, he died in that, that apartment. And um, we would visit and keep on the light. And it'd always be, hey, Rand, how you doing? Good to see you. You know, love you. It, it was always, it was always, um, you know, it was always uh, a, a good sort of 
on the light relationship, you know, we never talked in depth about anything. Like it was never a, um, you know, typical sort of father relationship where they provide solicited or unsolicited advice, you know, the fatherly sort of, right. We all sort of far exceeded what he did professionally and personally. And um, I'm not sure he had much to offer that way, but it, it, it never, he never felt obligated to, Hey, Randy, let me talk about the mistakes I made in my life. I hope you don't repeat them. I'm sorry for this. I'm sorry for that. I wish I hadn't done this. None of that conversation. It was always on the light, hunting, fishing, what the local football team's doing. It was always the light stuff. And it was always a a fun, good conversation, but it was never anything deep. No mentorship or, you know, none of that. And then um, did you say that when you were working in the prison that your father was a prisoner at the same time? So what happened was uh, when I came off active duty from the Army in 1985, um, I was going to school at the University of Maine at Augusta, and um, I worked part-time at the Fairfield Police Department, and I also worked part-time at the Somerset County Jail. And while I was there, um, he was arrested, um, and this time he stole a truck and was caught. And... Um, and so he did, uh, I, I guarded my father for three months at the Somerset County Jail, not only in the same facility, but in the same pod. So I would uh, go up the stairs in Charlie Pod and in I'd go, and there'd be probably eight people in that unit, and he was there. And so, morning, Dad. Morning, Randy. Really? And, uh, it's the strangest thing. Now as a, as a 59-year-old man, I look back on that. I'm a 21-year-old kid. And um, just working part-time trying to get my way through college. And um, yeah, it was, it was just as though we were sitting in our living room. It, there, was, there was no shame. There was no embarrassment. You know, if I went in there at six in the morning and they don't unlock until seven, uh, he'd knock on the window and say, hey, Randy, give me some hot water. And because um, they had no hot water in their cell because he wanted to make coffee. I'd say, dad, you know, I can't. And, um, and he'd say, you know, you bastard. And I'd say, hey, that, you know, do the, you're doing the time here, right? And then he had a lock at nine o'clock and laugh, turn TV on. They'd be playing cards. It'd be just as though we're sitting in our living room. Just the, the strangest thing. It was just so much was lost on him. Mm. He was a smart enough guy. And he was, you know, he was well, you know, I would say well read, but he could read well. He was poorly written, sort of. Um, I have, uh, you know, because I spent time in, in, uh, in Iraq and in, in Korea. Um, I had a lot of, I have a lot of letters from him and he's not, you know, he's poorly written sort of, but, uh, he would write and I'd write back to him. And, and, uh, so I have that sort of archival information, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, that was that. Then he went, uh, he ended up getting a year in, uh, the main department of corrections and he did time, um, in, in Charleston at Mountain View. And, um, so he did a year up there. Is that in Maine? Yes. Yeah. Did he ever do any time for domestic violence? Um, I think he he did uh, short stints, you know, 30, 60, 90 days at county jail. For the domestic violence with your mother because he wasn't. Yeah. 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 And um, you see, you hear about like fathers and sons both in jail or prison as incarcerated, but I've never heard of the the son being, you know, the guard over the father or the superior, you know. Yeah, there there are several circumstances when I was in law enforcement, both as when I was sheriff of Kennebec County, I remember getting a call from the Winslow Police Department and and I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family and and uh, the lieutenant called me and said, uh, hey, Randy, he said, I've got a situation here. I've got your dad here. OUI. What do you want me to do with him? 
And I said, you do what you do with OUIs. You know, I, I'm not going to compromise my integrity and, and my profession, you know, for for a special favor for for that circumstance. And um, I had another s- situation where uh, my uncle's house was on fire and um, the fire chief, you know, the, the fire chief said, no one else go in. It's too dangerous. My father ran in anyways, and uh, he was going to save what he could, whatever he could save. And and the fire chief said, arrest that man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you he said um, it to you. Yeah, the fire chief said arrest that man. And of course, the fire chief can't tell me who to arrest and or not to. And but did he know I, I it was worked. your father? Did he know it was? Oh your yeah, father? yeah, oh, everybody knows. And um, but in the end, the, the the sergeant determined not to arrest him. He was just trying to do good. But anyways, it, you know, there so there were circumstances over the years that you know put me in a in a in an awkward position. But I've been able to navigate out of him and not because he chooses to do what he does. I was not going to let that impact my profession or my family. Um, try to cover for something that he may have done. You know, I remember as a child uh, in Christmas, probably 1977 or so, and he had nothing for for Christmas gifts under the tree. And so Christmas morning, we wake up and there's nothing. And and he looks out the window and he sees a toboggan that obviously the neighbor received. It was a beautiful one. It's like an eight-seater and it's a maple and walnut. It's a nice pad on it. He walks over and grabs it. Merry Christmas, kids. And yeah. uh, that night, he drove us through the town of Clinton behind his pickup truck, um, up and down the streets on that toboggan. On a stone we, sled. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, he'd break and we'd slide under the truck. I mean, just crazy stupidness. Um, and there were a lot of times like that where he would, uh, you know, be jammed up on something or do something like that. But it was really kind of, you know, uh, my brother said in the obituary, he, he led life the way he wanted to, and regardless of the the consequences for others. And we were along for the ride, uh, one way or the other. You are listening to a conversation with Commissioner Randy Liberty, who oversees all the prisons and jails in Maine. On Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. Conversations with survivors of domestic abuse, second Friday, 4 p.m. of every month. I am the host, Patricia McLean, President Founder of Finding Our Voices which you can find at findingourvoices.net. And now, back to my conversation with Commissioner Liberty. Was your uncle a criminal or? No, my uncles are all good. My my uncles, my uncle Gene was kind of a mentor to us and he was a former Marine and he was a, he worked on boilers and he's a good, good man, raised his family and was focused on his family. Um, my uncle uh, Ray was an executive with, with um, um, UPS. He, he was the executive manager for New England, and uh, he did very well for himself. Multiple homes, camps on the lakes, and all that, you know. And so, what so, do you think that, on one hand, you know, your father had a violent father? I think you said right. His grandfather was violent, but the yeah. other boys turned out okay. Sometimes it's free will. I think that um, it's free will, and sometimes, um, you know, um, people. Well, look are, at you. You you certainly yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah, it's free will. You decide early on, you know, and and sometimes I think that we learn as much from people that do us wrong or do the wrong thing. And you look at that and say, this is not how it's going to go when I'm an adult. When I'm an adult, I'm going to be a good father. I'm going to have a a nice home. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to, you know, normalize my my children's, um, you know, rearing. And we all did that. All of us, all of my brothers all had successful families and it all went well. Um, do you remember I, saying that to yourself and thinking that? Yeah, I think so. You know, when, when really in particular, when when I was um, 
uh, when I was a senior, my brother joined the army a year ahead of me and I went to visit him and, and, um, you know, he lived in the barracks and, and he was able to buy a car. My uncle signed for him and, um, is he bought a 40 XP, a two seater and probably eight grand at the time. And, and, um, and, uh, first time I smelled new car smell and, uh, he was a military policeman like we all were. And um, interesting job to grab in the army for all of us involved in that environment as as kids. And um, I said, this is a good life. You know, he uh, he was proud of his uniform. He was proud to be part of a team. And um, and I said, that's what I want to do. So I went to the recruiter and I said, uh, I and early on I knew I wanted to, I wanted education. And so I said, I want to be a military policeman, and I want as much college money as you can give me. Other than that, you can do what you want with me. And and so I was a. Uh, I went to military police school uh, right out of high school, and I was sent to Korea, which was um, very enlightening for me. And, and you know, being immersed in 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 such a different culture, and I started going to night school while I was in, and um, we all did, and it just made all the difference for us. My mother was always very well read, and um, she's articulate, very smart, and uh, um, she always encouraged reading. We always had a ton of books in our home. And, um, and that made the difference, I think, in our lives, you know, the, um, her, although she made mistakes, as we all do, um, she was always very nurturing, loving, encouraging, supportive. She was good that way. And because of your, the way you're, the domestic violence that you grew up in, how do you think that shades maybe how you look upon the, um, maybe the, the, the offenders who are in incarcerated because of domestic violence i spent a lot of time on the road so um you know although i'm managing the correctional system here in maine now uh, most of my time 30 plus years i was on the road um, going to calls and many of those are domestic violence calls and so i saw you know you wonder why as a youth you're going through all of this and what sense does it make it gave me the perspective you know of uh, the victim and uh, and of the offender and so when I rolled in those calls, um, you know, I uh, I felt for the children, and um, it, you know, made me um, really emphasize the work that we did holistically, getting spouses the help they need, and the children. So now, you know, um, I've been in the field for a long time, and when I work with the residents that uh, um, that have been, you know, both victims and um, perpetrators of domestic violence. I take a holistic approach. I recognize that, you know, they're made up of learned behavior. They're addicted. They have mental health issues. They have trauma backgrounds. And I try to take a holistic, non-judgmental, destigmatizing sort of approach to all of this. You know, what can I do to fix that? Working with them, what can I do to make sure this doesn't happen again? And so not only do I work with the males that were perpetrators in large part, but I also have 140 women that are at the in Wyndham that are many, many high percentage, very high percentage of them are victims of domestic violence, violence in the home and sexual assault. So I'm working with all of these folks, having a trauma informed approach about how can we prevent this from happening? How can we heal? How can we redeem? You know, how can we um, um, enhance communication? How can we stop the, the um, perpetuation of this from generation to generation? And that, that's the approach we take. It's a non-judgmental approach to try to provide all of this. Historically, 
Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You know, nationally in the in the prison systems, if you've if you've graduated to the prison system, you come back sixty five percent of the time, which means to me, sixty five percent of the times they're new victims. And uh, in Maine, over the last three years, the work that that we take, the the Maine model approach that we take, um, the last three years we've had twenty point eight return to custody, twenty point eight. So with the education programming, the approach that we're taking seems to be working. Well, what's not working is these guys are not being sent to prison. That I mean, what do you think about that? Like the whole de- deincarceration movement and how it's not—it's—it's it's providing these guys with batteries intervention. And I've—I hear about them taking batteries intervention three, four, and five times, and that's instead of prison or jail. Am, am I wrong about that? I mean, I think that uh, there are circumstances where we have to send a message, and um, when domestic violence happens. Um, and of course, the the judge and and uh, defense and and prosecution all looking at this in totality. But I think that there needs to be a combination of um, accountability and programming. And um, often, just the programming is not enough to stop that from occurring. And um, people need to realize the damage and the severity that occurs in a in a domestically violent environment for multiple generations. You know, not only for the spouses being abused, but also the children and then the parents of the abused. It puts everybody in this terrible circumstance of, of trauma and it perpetuates one generation to the next. And so it should be taken very, very seriously. And it should provide a com, you know, a combination, as I said, of programming and treatment and consequence. Do you have you observed or, or what is your viewpoint about what's going on in Maine as far as accountability for domestic violence perpetrators? Um, you know, I think it's difficult. The, the, the challenge that we have is consistency, maybe. I think that, uh, you know, as you know, the district attorneys kind of drive that train and the philosophical approaches to any of these crimes, whether it be um, decriminalizing drugs or whether it be, you know, the implement, implementation of Narcan or, um, you know, bail to some degree. Do we do we have bail? Do we not have bail? In what circumstances are people are released? And domestic violence falls into that um, category. How seriously and how aggressively are they pursuing domestic violence perpetrators? And some are very aggressive, uh, some not as much. I am very pleased that over the last decades that uh, the legislature has required mandatory arrest for some of these domestic violence cases, um, requiring individuals to be you know, placed into custody and, and uh um, yeah, but you know, they, that, that's the problem I see. I mean, what do you think about this? I don't have a problem with the police as far as what I see because they are, they make the arrests, but then the district mm-hmm. attorneys and the judges let these guys go. And that that's demoralizing for the officers to be building this case and do all that work. And then just to see a dismissal, dismissal, dismissal. Is that, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's very difficult, very, very challenging for law enforcement because I think that, you know, we have a different perspective because we're there. We see the victims, we see the crime scenes, we see the wounds, um, and it, it's very personal to us. You know, not only personally for me uh, as a child growing up, but I I have been to hundreds of domestic violence uh, situations, crime scenes, and um, until you're there firsthand or until you endure it yourself, it's hard to to really understand uh, the the level of trauma that it produces. And so it's been discouraging for me, you know, to to see as as dockets are cleared post-COVID, the dis- dismissals that occur, that's very challenging because obviously there's probable cause to make the initial arrest and to charge the individual. And, um, you know, there's a lot of backlog. And so as I see the 
the um, the court notices. I see a lot of dismissals, and that's uh, very challenging for the law enforcement officers and for the victims of domestic violence to see. And then how? And then when there's priors, a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a pattern of behavior, and uh, you know something has to happen to break that pivot that pattern and to pivot away from violence. And um, normally that's a combination of accountability and programming. Do you think, could I ask your opinion of Better's intervention program? Um, I think that it depends uh, largely on the instructor. For me, it's, a, it's about the facilitation of that program um, and uh, so the, the makeup of the individuals that are taking the class. I've seen some that have been very successful and I've seen others where there have been a lot of complaints and a lot of uh, maybe a lack of accountability. So I think it really largely falls upon the facilitator of those, those courses. And then um, do you feel that domestic abusers, especially when they have a lot of priors, do you really feel that they can change? And especially when people want to apply the restorative justice to domestic violence. Interesting you should mention that because I teach restorative justice at the university. Yeah, and I'm teaching a course right now. And so I, I want to believe that people can change. I want to be, believe that people can be redeemed. Um, I, I, I want to believe that. I want to believe that people can be forgiven. And um, but there has to be an earnest attempt um, at that. You know, we have a system now um, in in the United States that encourages uh, offenders not to speak, not to um, speak to law enforcement, not to speak to the victim, not to um, engage in restorative justice because they can incriminate themselves. Right. The very first thing I do when I arrest somebody is say you have the right to remain silent and uh, anything you say to me can be used to used against you in a court of law. That encourages them to shut down the restorative justice piece, um, and and that's problematic. Um, but I also believe, and I have seen uh, people have done the right thing and been earnest in their treatment, in their programming, in understanding the very foundational issues that brought them um, to sort of behave this way. And um, I've seen it be successful. And they have so, to. They have to want it, right? They will have to want to want it. You can't be ordered into. I don't, it, can you really be ordered into a programming like that? Don't you feel like you really need to want to change? And I've seen both, you know, both outside and inside where people go through the motions to to um, satisfy a requirement. And then other people are earnestly, aggressively pursuing treatment and programming. So they can be redeemed and they can, you know, uh, start over again, uh, acknowledging um, the damage that they've done. Um, so I do believe it it, it, uh, it can be done, but you have to be aggressive and you have to be honest about what brought you there and how you can fix that. Can I ask your opinion on bail? Like, I guess there's no dangerous assessment in in Maine for bail, which seems odd. Do you what do you think about that? Like, you, I'm reading about these guys who are so dangerous, and they're just being, you know, bail five hundred dollars, bail hundred thousand dollars, domestic, you right. know, domestic users. I I feel as though uh, the you know monetizing. Um, someone's release is irrelevant to the threat assessment. It's just because you know, what it does, it, it discriminates against those people that don't have any, any assets. And so if I am arrested on the same charge and I have the same risk assessment threat level to harm to, to self or others, um, you know, if I have $500, I can be released, but the person that has no resources can be released. And so I think it should be um, you know, based upon threat level, we should do a right. good assessment to determine what kind of risk you pose to an individual or the community. And that be the determining factor, you know, prior to seeing a judge and let, let the judge decide. In jail and prison, uh, these programs where prisoners can petition the sheriff for early release, 
and mm-hmm. the sheriff can unilaterally laterally, um, just say, okay, after serving a third of the sentence or whatever, like, wh- do you have any viewpoint on that? Yeah, I've been involved in that. You know, I've been absolutely involved in that. And so, as you know, as you mentioned, uh, the the resident only needs to, needs to spend a third of their time and the sheriff can shave two thirds. What happens in reality is, um, is when there's overcrowding and the sheriff is pressured, um, the sheriff will say, uh, give me 10 names. They can't be, yeah, and the standard d- depends on whichever. So for me, I would say to them, you know, I, I had 165 beds and there were times I had 235 people incarcerated. They're sleeping on the floor. They're, the classroom is full of uh, people sleeping on the floor. The hallways are full. And so what I would say is give me no domestic violence individuals. Give me no individual that's been assaultive to another person. Um, you know, no um, um, sexual assault. You know, I had a category of people I would not release early. But if I had someone there who was on a warrant for failure to pay fine, that might be the person that um, I release. We make a deal on how they can uh, negotiate and pay that money back, um, whatever they may owe, or negotiating worth an instrument, maybe a bad check. Things that were nonviolent that where I could release them, that's what I would do. That should and, be standardized. Um, Shouldn't that be standardized that that's the policy like across the board and it's a written policy? And again, you have individual sheriffs who are elected officials who have different philosophies on that. And you have individuals that are in the state of Maine um, a wide range of overcrowdedness. Like there are some some counties like Penobscot, they have an old facility, they're chronically overcrowded, and they have a different circumstance than, say, Two Bridges does uh, in Wiscasset, where Saget, Hawk, and Lincoln um, are probably at 30% capacity. They have plenty of space. And so they're all over the place regarding um, jail spacing issues and overcrowding um, and um, individual philosophies about, I'll never release anybody or I'll release some that are nonviolent to try to work through this overcrowding. Are there, what, do you, what would you say about domestic abusers in relation to other people in for different crimes? You have two perspectives because you have a perspective of a father that you loved who was a, a violent, and then you have the perspective of being traumatized by your father as a child. Do you think that when you, I don't know, do, sometimes does that incur a little sympathy for the domestic violence perpetrator? No, no, no sympathy for domestic violence um, offenders at all. No sympathy, um, you know, bullies and, um, you know, the trauma that, that, is long lasting and damaging to their loved ones um, is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable and it impacts and it continues that perpetuation from one generation to the next. So no, I don't, I don't have any tolerance for that. It's just the, it's the crazy dynamic of love for your parents. Right. And trying to figure that out um, emotionally and intellectually, the difference between my emotional attachment to my father was loving, nurturing, to me, but again, as a professional and as a child watching him abuse my mother, it's it's very difficult and challenging. It's a it's complex. How did you avoid that? I know you said you had good role models, which was wonderful, but was it challenging for you sometimes in your marriage? And as a father, do you feel yourself being ever pulled in that direction? The the challenge that I had um, as an adult with anger management and getting, you know, going red hot and being stupid um, was when I came back from Iraq. I did uh, I did a year in Fallujah. I was an infantryman. Um, I led 800 Iraqi soldiers in the Battle of Fallujah. 
And um, house to house, I lost a lot of men. We killed a lot of folks. And um, and so the trauma from post the post traumatic stress that I had from um, as a law enforcement officer, unattended death, fatal accidents, suicides, death notifications, all. And I was a rescue diver. I pulled 19 bodies from lakes, rivers, and streams um, over the years. And so I had all of that trauma as a law enforcement officer. Then as a 40-year-old, I volunteered to go to Iraq, and I fought in Fallujah for a year. And I came back, and um, I had post-traumatic stress. And, and the couple, the symptoms I had were I was quick to emotion, quick to cry, weep, you know, if I recall those traumatic incidents, and then quick to anger. And um, and so when I recognized that, um, I went to get treatment at Togus, and I, and I got help. And um, I did outpatient um, for a period of time, and it was very helpful to me. And um, although I still have demons, you know, from all of that violence from my law enforcement career and from combat, um, I manage it well. I'm easygoing by nature but I was able to diminish significantly. And so I know the the power of treatment and programming and, and getting to the origins of, of what causes some of that. Um, and that's why you see many, I think uh, many folks, many veterans, combat veterans, self-medicate, have anger issues, and they need to get treatment. And so um, anyways, so, you know, after I returned and I received treatment, I worked with Jennifer Rooks on Maine Public Broadcasting, and we did a documentary called A Matter of Duty. And it's still online. It's called The Matter of Duty, Main Public Broadcasting. And it's an hour-long um, sort of exploration of what combat does to you. Um, it follows five veterans, to include myself, on their journey. Five of them were incarcerated as a result of, of uh, you know, the, the trauma. And um, it's really interesting. And the, and the whole point of that was, for me, was to say, if, if Command Sergeant Major, Infantry, Bronze Star, Fallujah Randy, Sheriff Liberty... Um, law enforcement officer liberty. If I can, if I can uh, um, go get treatment and say, "Hey, listen, I need help." Um, anyone can. There's no weakness in in admitting that you need assistance. There's no weakness in saying that the uh, the the feelings that you have and and the challenge you have are a result of of the natural result of of the trauma that you endured in combat. Go get help. You and your family all deserve that. And so I uh, that was the the point of the documentary. And I think the same could be held true for those. Um, domestic violence offenders that that um, they need to understand the cycle. They need to understand what caused that, and they need to do whatever they need to do to stop that from from reoccurring. And then, what would you say to people who the deincarceration people who just want to get rid of prisons and don't think anybody belongs in them? And as, as pertains to domestic violence, if we can, is there yeah some- the, the 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 prison abolitionists is difficult when when I speak with them because. I've been to the crime scenes. I've seen the damage done. I know the importance of accountability, and I know the importance of separating some folks from the community for a while to reset, to program, to re-release so the community is safer. And so it, for me, it's like saying, if you close all the hospitals, there'll no longer be any illness. It doesn't make sense. Well, always, I, I see no reason for mass incarceration but I certainly see a reason for some level of incarceration to keep the community safe and to help those individuals rehabilitate and return back to the communities and families in a better way than when they arrived. But there's more, is it true that there's many more programs in prison than in jail, right? There is. I managed the the Kennebec County Jail for 14 years, and I've been in this system for 10, uh, for eight now. And um 
you know, the, the jails have the problem of being funded on property tax, which is limited and shared by many, and uh, often funding issues. The other problem is, as I mentioned, I had 165 beds at Kennebec County Correctional Facility. I had 3,200 intakes, 3,200 intakes with 165 beds. So the volume of people coming in for three, five, 10 days, 30 days, and it's very hard to program anyone effectively if you only have a 30-day um, sentence. So isn't that, that a just, reason, isn't that a reason to get for violent, repeat domestic violence offenders to have a sentence of more than nine months so that they can go to prison rather than jail? That is the philosophy of many of the district attorneys. And they say, you know, what does it take for us to get the, to break this cycle of repeated offending? Um, and often they'll say, let's give them nine months in a day so they can get into the into the prison system where I'm not sure if you've been to the prison system or jails, but the jails are sort of like the emergency room triage chaos. People are drunk and high and coming off opiates and the mule kicking and mental health issues. There's a lot going on there. By the time they get to the prison system, it's a normalized situation where they're going to school, they're working during the day, they're getting programming. There's a lot of normalization happening there, and they can really focus on what they need to focus on, whether it be domestic domestic violence, substance use disorder, mental health, vocational that is programming. That so true. Like, I don't know what's happening in the men's unit, but I know that in the women's unit at Wyndham, I've had so many women there tell me that that's what saved them is to be mm. in prison because they they just, first of all, had peace and they had like no chaos and they can start to address things and they can start to examine things. But the sad thing is, is with um, the, when I was in Wyndham working with a woman and they would tell me about these horrible domestic violence situations mm -hmm. that they're in and they are getting help for addiction and things like that. And in our book club, we are talking about domestic violence and they're opening their eyes to it. But a lot of times they are planning to go back to the guy when they get out. So what do you do about that? It's very difficult because I think you'll find frequently they were raised in that environment. And so the, it's just, there's a sense of normalcy. And often, as you know, there's a financial dependency, right? That's where their home is. That's where their, their kids are. They often, you know, they may, they need that financial support and that's who they know and care about. And so, it's a very um, complex um, circumstance. You know, not many of them, you know, don't have a vocational um, background that allows them to have a livable wage, and um, you know, maybe their their um, support system isn't solid. It's very challenging. That could be their only friend, but I do think the one really another really good benefit of prison for domestic violence offenders is to give the woman enough time to get her life together. First mm -hmm. of all, have him out of her head so she can begin to understand what it was all about, and then to get her life together, right? And to, to because don't you think that's that's a critically important in, in not only getting him the help but giving her the time. Sure, I agree, and um, you know there needs to be a pause. Right, there needs to be a separation. There needs exactly. to be time for reflection, and that can only come if if those two folks are separated and getting treatment. Is there anything that you would like to say? I would like to say that you know domestic violence is is um, so damaging, so traumatizing, and so far-reaching um, in our communities and our families that you know we need to invest the time and resources um, for people to get help and treatment. Um, you know, both outside of a correctional facility and inside, and so with those those opportunities where it doesn't rise to the level of necessitating necessitating 
um, a, a uh, incarceration, we can do that if it doesn't rise that level. But if it does, um, that may be the best place for them to be incarcerated, to provide programming. Um, we need to get away from the model of warehousing. We need to find a way to fund programming in correctional facilities um, in at the county level, because by far, most of the domestic violence offenders, the first few times, they'll probably get county time. And if we don't provide the resources to the sheriffs and the jail administrators uh, to provide that um, programming, the cycle will continue. And so there's no money saved by lack of programming or funding programming because the, the, the cost of incarceration, repeated incarceration, life on the installment plan far exceeds what it costs for programming uh, on the outside and the inside. And so I think it's a, it's a community issue. Um, we need to give it the priority that it deserves. We need to support the organizations that are supporting the, the survivors of domestic violence. And we need to do everything we can to invest in, in the future of, of these uh, survivors. So do you do you advocate from the governor for more funding for these things that you're talking about? Um, so the the funding that I have um, is is good in my system. And um, the county jails um, are able to request through my budget uh, to the governor about additional funding. I think it's important to to recognize that the opera funds that came f- during COVID, um, significant levels of funding were provided to the counties. Each county received tens of millions of dollars to find a way, you know, to, to invest where they thought was important. So some of them invested in infrastructure, some of them in, invested in, in uh, substance use disorder treatment. Um, and I'm not sure how much that was invested in domestic violence programming. Some of them put it, uh, RFPs out, requests for proposals to, to their counties for organizations, nonprofits, to, to you know, propose where the money should go. Others were very pointed at where they thought it should go. I think like your county is looking at doing um, a uh, substance use disorder facility. They, they think that's a priority and it is. Um, so it's all over the place, but there's, there were hundreds of millions of dollars that were pushed to the counties um, to invest where they thought was important. And I think that this is certainly one of those areas where the counties could invest those monies and um, assist where they, where they can. And including... In addition to programs for perpetrators, uh, we need a lot more money for survivors. Sure. Finding our yep. voices is, is I can't believe we're getting district attorneys and everybody reaching out to us for like gas cards for these women to flee because the guy's getting out of jail early. Like, why isn't there a system in the district attorney's office for gas cards for these women? It doesn't even make sense. Right, right. The uh, the victim witness advocates, um, they work with that. But again, in the, at the county system, what it really takes, I think, is the uh, voices to be heard at the county commissioner level because the the sheriff and the jail administrator and the district attorney, um, they all do their, their particular um, responsibilities. But it's the county commissioners that determine where the monies go. They manage the funds in the counties. And I, my experience has been, you know, doing 26 years at, at, at uh, Kennebec County, those meetings are very lightly attended. You know, the, the the three or four county commissioners will sit and the department heads will be there. But rarely, very rarely would I see anybody from the community saying, you know something, I want you to consider providing more funding for uh, domestic violence or whatever the case may be. That's good to know. So, oh, it is. I think I'll, you'll find I'll, I'll go to there. And I just want to say one example. In December, we had a district attorney reach out to us. This guy smashed this woman's window of their house and smashed the window of windshield of her car. So her her pipes were, were gonna freeze, it was December, and because of the window in her house. 
She couldn't drive the car because of the window in her car. He was picked up. He was put in jail or prison. They reached out to us because they applied for through the Victims Fund for money to fix the glass. She said that um, when the money came in, that they would reimburse us. That was in December. We just got notice a week ago that, that, they, that they, they're going to start to reimburse that. What's the woman's, we, if we hadn't given the money? How ridiculous is that, that it takes that much time to get, you know, $800 to fix the glass? How is, that's, the, that's how the Victims Fund works in Maine. Right. It, it's absolutely ridiculous. We need to prioritize the survivors of, of domestic violence and sexual assault and um, ensure that they are whole and, and taken care of. And, and when we fund those positions, you know, that's where we demonstrate our value. You know, what do we value? What's important to us? It's what we fund, Right. That's and so um, critically important, um, I think, that at, at the county level to speak with your county commissioner. Most people, by far, don't know who their county commissioners are, right? We only see their names when they're on the ballot. Often uh, they're unopposed, right? It's and true. so the, we, the way that we hold our, our elected officials accountable and let them know what our priorities are is by face-to-face meetings, by being heard at the county commissioner meetings, by being present at the at the budget hearings when they when they when they start discussing budgets, what's important, let them feel the pressure from from advocates that are that need that funding for the victims. I will do that. And then, last question: Why did you decide to speak with me today? Um, I think it's important for people um, that are positioned, uh, you know, people of influence, maybe people that have. Uh, you know, I have four decades of experience of this. Five, when you talk about the, my childhood. And um, it's important that uh, people hear our voices, understand that that domestic violence is far reaching. And those people you think that may be above or untouched with this sort of thing, uh, not true. It impacts all of us. And it's important for us to talk about this, destigmatize uh, this particular issue and find ways that we can better support the survivors of domestic violence. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful spending time with you. Just in the past few weeks, many men have confided in me that they grew up in domestic abuse. Accomplished men walking around with a toxic load buried inside them. But not really buried, because there are bound to be impacts with trauma this deep, and especially in your formative years, and especially when it is a boy and his father. That is why, on Tuesday, November 28th, at the Camden Public Library, Finding Our Voices is presenting Men Talking growing up with abusive fathers, and breaking the cycle. Three men will share their stories and lead a community conversation. Facilitator of the discussion is John Wilson of Brooklyn, Maine. John is a Finding Our Voices board member. He is the founder of Wooden Boat and also founder and president of Just Alternatives, which facilitates victim-centric discussions in prison between victims of violent crime and their perpetrators. November 28th at the Camden Public Library, 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. This event caps our two-month fall Let's Talk About It tour that we are bringing to eight libraries from Millinocket to York. Join us if you can. More information is on our website at findingourvoices.net. And if what we were talking about sounds familiar, If someone in your family is making you afraid, or if you suspect someone you love is in danger or trapped in something that is not good for them, say something to someone. The National Domestic Violence Hotline, confidential, 24-7, 
is at 1-800-799-7233. You can connect to me and the Sisterhood of Survivors that is Finding Our Voices by visiting our website at findingourvoices.net. If you want to come on the show to talk with me about your story, get in touch at hello at findingourvoices.net. The music on the show is by my daughter, Jackie Lee McLean. Audio engineering is by Tammy Oropesa. Thank you for listening. And remember, love should feel good. Thought you had the answers to me for the longest time. Thought you were the person with the key. Lord, what was I thinking? There's a path you'll never find. Leading to a place you'll never Oh